I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Welcome to Banking Weekly from the Financial Times with me, Patrick Jenkins. Joining me in the studio today is Martin Arnold, our banking editor. And joining us from New York is Laura Noonan, our US banking editor. Our guest this week is Professor Doug Diamond, who's an authority on bank stability and a professor at the Chicago Graduate School of Business. This week, we'll be discussing the latest regulatory shenanigans around banking post-Brexit. Also, a prediction from Professor Doug Diamond at Chicago's Graduate School of Business about the next danger to bank stability. And finally, a look at JP Morgan's initiative to boost its coding staff. First, though, to that Brexit story. And Martin, there's been months now of wrangling between banks and regulators over the way in which they might be able to continue doing business post-Brexit, particularly when it comes to trading and the use of this facility that's called back-to-back transactions. Now, this is something that allows banks to replicate transactions that happen on the ground in various countries, particularly around Europe, but also globally, with matching transactions in London so that they can book this business here in London. There are regulators particularly at the ECB, who are not happy with this continuing to happen. A few weeks ago, we reported about another European regulator at the EBA, Andrea Enria, who's been a sometime guest on this programme, in fact, talking about absolutely back-to-back needs to be continued in Europe. It's part of the global banking system. But Martin, the ECB has said in the last couple of days that no, it, it can't continue. It feels a bit like a political intervention. What did you make of it? I think it's more in the past few weeks that banks have been getting their individual guidance from the ECB, also from the national central banks, the national financial regulators. And this is all coming down to their contingency plans. So you hear a lot about banks' contingency plans when it comes to Brexit. And in effect, the banks have been presenting their contingency plans to deal with Brexit on day one. So assuming there's no deal, cliff edge exit from the EU by the UK. So the worst case scenario, what's their plan for coping with that and ensuring that they can still serve customers, that the contracts all work and that their licenses are all in place? Are they set up for that? And in some of those contingency plans, they've been assuming that they will still be able to use this booking technique called back-to-back, which essentially allows them to transfer the risk from one location back to another. So in this case, from continental Europe, the rest of the EU, back to the UK, where they've got all their capital, their risk management people, their compliance people, all the oversight, all the things that they have here. The reason the banks want to do that is to avoid duplicating those structures, duplicating the capital and the liquidity that go along with them in two places in Europe, which would be much less efficient and to their costs. So the ECB has said to them, fine, day one, you can use back to back 
technique, but we want you to curtail that relatively quickly. And the time frame they initially looked at, they wrote a letter to the firms saying three years was the most they would allow them to continue using the back-to-back technique. And now they're actually indicating, several firms have told us that actually it's more like two years. They want to see a plan for how they get to a point where they have self-sufficient entities in the rest of the EU that can handle those trades and keep those trades without having to transfer them back to London. And that requires a lot more capital, a lot more liquidity and a lot more compliance and risk management staff. Why is ECB doing this? The concern is that they don't want to see so-called brass plate entities set up in places like Luxembourg, where you've just got a letterbox entity, two or three people there, no capital, no liquidity, and essentially all of the capital liquidity, all the people, all the staff, all the managers still sit in London and nothing really changes because what they're worried about is that that would mean regulators in Europe, the local regulators and the ECB would lack the visibility on where are the risks and what happens in the next financial crisis if all of the risks are still being managed out of London and yet these are transactions that are taking place with EU customers. Well, thanks for that summary. We've certainly set up for an interesting dynamic because I mentioned Mr. Enria at the EBA, the European Banking Authority, another regulator, has a different view and thinks back-to-back should be able to continue. And of course, he is a prime candidate to be potential future head of the single supervisory mechanism, the regulator within the ECB. Yeah, well, if he does become the head of the SSM, then I'm sure they'll quickly bash him into shape in terms of his views on back-to-back trading. But I think the other interesting angle here is whether the ECB is exceeding its mandate, because the ECB doesn't actually have oversight of broker-dealers, so investment banking trading firms. It's got oversight of the big banks above a certain size threshold that do traditional lending-type activities. But the sales and trading, the capital markets-type businesses that we're talking about here, in particular, derivatives etc. The ECB officially doesn't have oversight of many of them and yet it's wading in alongside the national authorities and saying I want to see those contingency plans and I want to see you curtailing use of back-to-back over a relatively short period of time. We'll watch it closely. Thank you very much. Let's move on to our second topic. Now, Professor Doug Diamond is an authority on bank stability. He's a professor at the Chicago Graduate School of Business and, as I say, has talked extensively and published papers extensively on the issue of how banks fail. It won't have escaped our listeners that we are 10 years on from the height of the financial crisis in 2008. And I caught up with Professor Diamond to ask him what he thought had changed in terms of the regulatory landscape and to what extent the post-crisis regulations had worked. We put a lot of regulations into effect. You know, we had Basel III, we had Dodd-Frank, we had all kinds of things around the world. And the world doesn't seem to be blowing up right now. That doesn't necessarily mean that it's the the fault or the benefit of these regulations because the very high levels of liquidity on corporate balance sheets and floating around in, in investor pockets essentially provides such a buffer at the moment and provides such low volatility, like a sort of shock absorber for low volatility, that one can't declare victory that the regulations were good or alternatively Uh, You can't, going farther, say, we clearly don't need any regulations because look at these things, or we have them and they don't seem to be doing anything and everything is fine. So the view that I've been, uh, Raghu Rajan, who's co-author of mine, 
Yunza, who is another co-author, have been pushing based on a theoretical model. We have some data, but we didn't get this from the data. We came up with a theory, is that in these times of very high liquidity, sort of corporate balance sheet liquidity, things like that, the financial markets incentive that it gives firms to be financially careful, which either means, for example, putting many covenants into loans, having high quality voluntary accounting standards, having more disclosure and things like that. The benefits to a firm in terms of the pricing of the securities they can issue is quite low today. So there's essentially no rate of return on financial carefulness. So the market is willing to do financial carelessness, but it's because of the liquidity today that the market feels this way. And it's not anything irrational. It's that like the resale price of firms' assets, if the firm were, say, to go bust and sell things in liquidation, receivership, or bankruptcy, if you pretty much you sell something like that today, it sells at full price. So if you're a creditor, you don't really need lots of covenants and protection. You figure if they default, we'll foreclose, we'll get a pretty good price. Stopping this thing early isn't as essential as it would be in more normal times. So I have the view that we have lots of liquidity around because we had too little during the crisis, so we decided to have too much now. Things are fine now, but we're potentially sowing the seeds for the next crisis, which could show up in the corporate sector, could show up in the sectors other than commercial banks that are owning a lot of the leveraged loans that are being produced right now. You probably know the data. There's tons of Covenant Light. More and more of the Covenant Light stuff is held by hedge funds or CLOs, things like that. I went on to ask Professor Diamond what he thought could be reformed now, whether there were areas which were ripe for either deregulation or tweaking of the existing rules. Right now, we have these things like the liquidity coverage ratio and net stable funding ratio. There's a certain amount of liquidity you just have to hold. And it has this problem that if you have to hold it, you can't use it. So my view is that particularly since we have stress tests run in all developed economies right now, that they could do better by saying, if you have a liquidity coverage ratio, you're allowed to violate it. You're allowed to use that liquidity. But if you use that liquidity, either you borrow against it, that the lender of last resort lends against that liquidity, or if you just run it down, you're allowed to use it. But the same kind of restrictions on paying dividends that you get for violating your capital requirement should be used on your liquidity requirement because you want to have liquidity that's usable, but only used in extreme circumstances. So the lender of last resort wouldn't have to get in there providing liquidity to the system if each bank voluntarily held a bit more in each period. And the point is the banks themselves know best how much their liquidity needs are going to be over the next month or week or whatever. So telling them how much to hold with a formula doesn't give them any particular reason to use their own information about how much liquidity. Unless they have another center, they're just going to stay right on the requirement. Now, suppose you can say, okay, if you stay above the requirement, then you get to pay more dividends. If you violate it, you can't pay any, or you can, it gets a sliding scale. You can get them to voluntarily hold a buffer above the required amount and run it down as needed. And I think that's a better system. You could have lower liquidity requirements and the same amount of liquidity in the system if they improve this thing. And I think stress tests could do this because stress tests are sufficiently discretionary by the central banks. And the only sanction they really have is telling you you have to raise more capital, you can't pay dividends. This is a good way to link 
capital requirements and liquidity requirements. That was something they should have done during the crisis as well, because they're not two separate issues. The reason you want liquidity requirements is because runs occur when you think a run will make you insolvent. So that's about liquidity and capital together, and they always treat them as two different things. This could be additional implementation of the way they do stress tests. In the U.S., the stress tests are a purely discretionary thing that the Federal Reserve does. They have their own rules, and they have a decision of whether you're stable or not. And they do look at your liquidity, but there's nothing right now that says if your liquidity is too low, we can do this thing that says you can't pay dividends. This would be a better system. And I think, and this is the part that people may easily disagree with, let's say you think ahead that says if they're undercapitalized or underliquidityed in the future, if they're not allowed to pay dividends, will that make their stock price go up or down today? I think it'll make it go up because it says, we're not going to let you get into a situation where you might fail. So if you can say you're not allowed to pay dividends and we'll lend to you freely, that's going to keep the banking firm alive. Whereas if you're going to say, okay, you're allowed to pay dividends, but once you pay them out, you're insolvent, unless you're going to get a true bailout where they bail out the equity holders too, that's bad for equity. Would this not fall into category of additional regulation? It could be. It at could. a time when there's a deregulatory mood in the world? It could, but since the central banks can do it without asking anyone, you could treat it as a bargain. We're going to say you can have a little less liquidity, but if you violate it, your requirement is down. If you violate it, you can't pay dividends, or you have to cut your dividend, or you, or you can't raise dividends. That one is probably the one that's the most benign, is not raising the dividend. There's a similar argument about capital requirements. If you have a capital requirement of a certain percentage, but you're allowed to violate it for a long time, that number has to be really high. There's this Helwigan and Mahdi thing. If you just calibrate this to how much capital would it have taken to get through the crisis, you need like 20 or 25%. So the idea is you have 25%, you have a big loss, you're still solvent after the big loss. Suppose it's like at 15%, but you have to get it back up to 15 as soon as it gets down to 14%. That actually might provide more resiliency than 25 you can run to zero. So this is the same kind of argument. If you force people to either recapitalize or replenish their liquidity smoothly when they're still both solvent and liquid, it works better. It's about providing incentives rather than providing buffers. And I think capital and liquidity are both about incentives and buffers. Not everybody agrees with that, though. That's an argument that academics who think about it for a long time come to and some of the best regulators. A lot of the people who like contingent capital, these cocos like the Swiss have, the people who support it say it's about incentives. The people who say it's stupid say it's about buffers and equity is a better buffer. So. And the American view on contingent capital is pretty negative. Yes. Right? There's one really boring and self-interested view of why that is. It's because contingent capital fails the definition of a debt instrument, so it can't be tax deductible. Mm. But that's not an issue about whether the regulators want stability or not, right? Taxes are a separate issue from stability. The Swiss have done a good job on it, though, I think the Swiss have. They have, although contingent capital generally and bail-in bonds and so on yeah. are, are just untested, aren't they? Yeah. That's the danger. There's an interesting paper by some BIS people. One of the co-authors is a professor at Columbia named Patrick Bolton that shows that the majority of the contingent capital bonds that issued are what are called write-down bonds rather than debt that converts to equity. So these things are junior to equity. So if you can imagine, if you want to give equity holders incentives to take more risk, give them something that they get the upside and somebody else gets the downside. It's even worse than just debt and equity. So if you think about incentives, the actual cocos that are written are worse than nothing. If you think about buffers, they're better, they're the best possible. Something that writes all the way down, that's the biggest buffer, 
If you think about equity incentives, it's bad. So I actually don't like those. So let's go over now to Laura Noonan, who is our US banking editor and has been writing about JP Morgan's interesting focus on coders. Laura, it turns out that coding isn't just for the 50,000 or so tech staff that JP Morgan has, but they're actually launching a new initiative to boost those numbers. So yeah, JP Morgan Chase has just completed a pilot scheme with its analysts and some of its associates coming into the bank over the summer. What they've done is, at the asset management side, they've made all 300 analysts who joined this year, they've all had to do some coding. On the investment bank side, it was a narrower range, so 300, which is about a third of the total analyst class, had to do some coding. And the idea here is that they believe coding is important for more than just the people whose jobs are directly impacted by it. So we spoke to the head of JP Morgan Asset Management, Mary Callahan Erdos, and she was saying that coding isn't just for tech people, it's for basically anyone who wants to run a company in this day and age. And she thinks that even if you're not going to be directly coding things, that everyone should speak the same language as the technology team so that they can understand the progress and so that they can understand what is theoretically possible in their business. So it's a bit of a turnaround because for investment bankers in particular, coding hasn't got much of a direct impact on their job. But I think the idea is that it has an indirect impact and it's going to be such a big thing in the future that they really have to be able to understand it. So is this something that other banks are doing or are likely to do, Laura? What's the reaction be like? Other banks aren't doing this to the same degree. City is doing it for people in the markets business or for a group of them. In the case of City, that is a narrower range of people and there's more direct applicability of coding to markets than there is for investment banking. JP Morgan are also looking at potentially branching out to an even wider cohort. So I think ideally there are some people within the firm who would like everyone to have to have done at least Coding 101. That might meet some resistance among some of the higher ups. But I think among the juniors, there's actually a lot of enthusiasm for this. They see that actually coding and these kind of skills are going to be crucial for the future. Other banks, when I was asking them about it last week, they were saying officially that this was something that made a lot of sense and that maybe they might look at doing it in the future. So I think we probably are going to see more banks follow suit on this. You'll also probably see more people going into banking who will take it upon themselves to learn some version of coding or some version of programming going forward before they actually approach the bank because they'll see that these are skills which are really in demand by the banks. Well, that's it for this week. All that's left for me to do is to thank Martin here in the studio, Laura in New York, and our guest, Professor Doug Diamond of the Chicago Graduate School of Business. Also, thank you for listening. If you are not a subscriber to the FT, do take a look at our latest subscription offer at ft.com offer. And remember, you can keep up to date with all the latest banking stories at ft.com banking. That was the last appearance as banking editor of Martin Arnold. He is moving on to a different role. We will have our new banking editor, David Crow, in place in coming weeks, although I do hope we will welcome Martin back as a guest in future. Banking Weekly was produced by Fiona Simon. Until next week, goodbye. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. 
Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns.